Did you say, I don't remember us saying those. Well, you may not have been here at the time. Uh, it was a long time ago that we said those. So five months ago now, we had said Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Uh, be sure to keep an eye on that newsletter to see which one we'll be saying next week. And we'll just continue through our review of all of those verses that we've said until we've reviewed them all through December and then we'll start a new verse or passage in January. Malachi 3. Today we are looking at verses 7 through 12. If you have an outline there, you'd note, you'll notice that the title is, Will a Man Rob God? Will a Man Rob God? You know, it is one of life's great mysteries that while we serve a God that is sovereign, a God that is all-knowing, a God that is all-powerful, Yet, we also serve a God who has, in a manner of speaking, as we might say, obligated himself to the choices of men. Now, it is not that God is obligated to the choices of men as much as, like I said, let's be, let's be clear and let's be distinct here. God has obligated himself oftentimes to the choices of men. Let me explain. God is a God who has no needs. God is a God who requires no help. And requires no favors. And yet, God has chosen to rely upon men to see his work accomplished in this world. Yes, spirit-filled men, but men nonetheless. God owns all that is by virtue of his creative power. And yet, he has given man dominion and the ability to exercise authority over that creation that is his. God does not need our resources to accomplish his purposes, and yet God has chosen to use us and to use our resources, the resources of his own people, to work out his own will upon the earth. Now today we're going to begin a whole new set of controversies, a whole new category of controversies. I told you at the beginning of the service how much our church was able to give to Missionary Gillespie last week. As I was reviewing this message, I, I write these messages a month in advance, and I plan them a year in advance. And as I was reviewing this message, I almost had a, uh, like I had a little bit uh, last Sunday night, I almost felt as though I would be preaching to the choir a bit this morning. Because, again, this morning's message, as we look into the book of Malachi, will be about giving. And yet I recognize that just because our church gave well, that does not mean that every heart in this room has yet been convinced of the need. And I understand as well that God has ordained for this passage to be here at this time for this reason, uh, for a reason. And so we're going to look into this passage this morning and understand what God's word has to say in controversy to the nation of Judah. As I said, this passage, if you were to look at the outline of Malachi that I gave you uh, maybe two months ago now, uh, begins a whole new category of controversies between God and the people of Judah. The past many weeks have been contentions directly related to Israel's failure to regard the holiness of God. They disregarded the holiness of God as they polluted God's sacrifices through second best offerings. They profaned his holiness through divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. They wearied the Lord through misrepresenting the justice of God. And we remember those messages as we've walked through the prophecy of Malachi. Well, this next set of controversies is not explicitly over Judah's rejection of God's holiness, but as God presents it, uh, beginning in verse 7, we see that it is more so a rejection of 
God's ordinances. Look with me at verse 7. God says, even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. As verse 7 begins. Now, as we begin this morning, I suppose it would be important for us to understand what is an ordinance. God is rebuking Israel here because they have gone away from his ordinances. Well, it's important then to understand what an ordinance is. When we don't know something in the scriptures, it's important that we look it up. It's important that we, we know what we are reading so that we can understand what God is trying to tell us through what he is trying to tell those that were there in the day that these words were written. So an ordinance is a rule. An ordinance, uh, perhaps we could call it a law. It is a rule or a law established by an authority. Now, we all live according to ordinances. We all live according to rules, do we not? In my house, I have ordinances that my daughters must follow. There are rules that they are expected to follow. Now, my daughters are one-year-old. They were one-year-old this past Wednesday. But they know these ordinances. They know very clearly what's expected of them because we have enforced those ordinances, those laws, those expectations, those rules through discipline. And as we have disciplined our daughters and they understand certain catchwords that we say that are prohibition, you may not, do not, no, as they learn these things and they understand these things, they learn very quickly what is okay and what is not. My daughters, there's a rule, my daughters may not put shoes in their mouths. They can play with shoes. They, they love to put things in their mouths. They, they chew on everything. They can play with shoes. They love playing with shoes. They love picking up daddy's shoes and carrying them around the house and doing those things. But they may not put those shoes in their mouths. That's disgusting. Those shoes go all over the place. They're not allowed to put them in their mouths. Now, as they're walking around, I have crawling in my notes here, but that was four weeks ago. They're walking now. As they're walking around the house, they try to lick a shoe. And I will look at them and I will say, do not eat. They know what do not eat means. It means whatever it is that you're about to put in your mouth, it's not allowed to go in your mouth. And then they decide whether they want to accept the consequences of disobedience or whether they want to obey that ordinance. That's what an ordinance is. We all live by ordinances. Our federal government gives us ordinances. State and local governments give us ordinances. Parents give us ordinances. Churches give us ordinances. Schools give us ordinances. The various degrees of authority in our lives have all come with rules, ordinances, laws. Well, God has ordinances as well. These are things that we are expected to do because God has told us to. They are the rules that he has set in place. God has ordinances for Judah... God has ordinances for Israel. God has ordinances for us as well. And God tells the people of Judah in verse 7 that from the days of their fathers, they have failed to obey, to keep his ordinances. They failed to follow his rules. Now, the phrase from the days of your fathers is one that is often used in Scripture, particularly in the prophets, and it is directly referencing the days all the way back to the time when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. 
Those would have been the days of their fathers. Those would have been the days all the way back to when the nation was first formed and was brought out of the days or out of the land of Egypt under the guidance of Moses. So basically what God is telling this nation is that from the very beginning of your existence, from the very days that I established you and said you are now a nation, you and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents have continually failed to obey God's rules. That is the controversy that will overshadow the next three weeks' worth of lessons until we're finished with the book of Malachi. But as is indicative or somewhat characteristic of our God, as we can even understand from Malachi 3.6, he has not given up on his people. God said in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Your sons of Jacob, your sons of a deceiver, you are disobedient, but I am not a changing God. I will be faithful. He has not given up on his people. We saw last time that God was going to be faithful. In fact, his judgment upon them was a mark of his faithfulness. As his judgment, his chastening was to faithfully draw them back to himself and restore them to a proper relationship with God. And so God makes this promise in the second half of verse 7. A promise that he has given many times in scripture. He says, return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Return unto me and I will return unto you. Does that comment amaze anyone else? Or one verse into our passage this morning. Does it amaze you to think that the sovereign God of the universe, the God that we said at the beginning, needs nothing? Is not dependent upon us for anything. He created everything. He holds the worlds in the hollow of his hand. He is greater than the vast universe that we look at when we turn our eyes into the heavens at night. He made everything from those smallest single-celled microorganisms to the most complicated things we can imagine, such as the human eye. Can you imagine that this great God of all creation would plead with that creation, as insignificant as we are, to return to Him? And promising to that insignificant creation that if they will but obey Him, and if they will but love him as he has asked them to do, just love the one who made them, the one who saved them, the one who provides for them, then he would faithfully bless them for it. What a thought. What a God that would obligate himself to these insignificant people if they would but obey him, love him. Well, we've been studying through the book of Malachi for some time now. And so the response of the people should not surprise us, although I suppose it always should shock us. Notice what they say at the end of verse 7. But ye said, wherein shall we return? God confronts them with their refusal to obey him. He tells them, return to me. 
and they have the same blind response that we've seen time and again. Wherein shall we return? Literally, they say, return to who? We haven't gone anywhere. The pride of this people blinded them so much that they don't even realize how far from God they had gone. They thought that they were just fine. They thought that there was nowhere to return, that they were right with God, that they were doing everything right. We read through the book of Malachi and we see all of the things that we've reviewed today, the second best offerings, the improper motivations, the profaning of God's holiness through divorce and remarriage, all of these things. And they say, wherein should we return? We're doing just fine. Sounds similar to a Christian culture that we live in today. I fear that we, though, without even looking, turning our eyes outside of these walls, without even going beyond the stained glass on either side of us, we can often be this way as well. God pricks our hearts about a certain issue. Perhaps that issue is giving, as we've talked about giving some over these past weeks. Perhaps it's church involvement. Perhaps it's our efforts at personal soul winning. Perhaps it's our time with our family or our time with our family in personal devotions. Perhaps it's what we watch on television. Perhaps it's what we listen to on the radio. Perhaps it's the movies we watch. Perhaps it's the places we go. Whatever it is. You've been convicted. The Holy Spirit has made it very clear. God says, return to me. And so often our response is, return to where? I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't done anything different. I'm still serving God. Return to where? As we step into the issues that God will address over these next few weeks, may I encourage you, as we think about this week, as we think about the weeks to come, to have a heart of humility. We, within this room, your pastor included, all have areas of our lives where perhaps we've drifted. And I don't know if you've ever been in a boat. When I was younger, my friend and I had a little, it was a little motorboat, and we would go out on a lake in Colorado. And we'd go fishing. And one time, there was, uh, we, we were fishing off the, off the dock, actually. We weren't in the boat. And one of uh, the lures got caught in a bunch of reeds, and we could not get it out for the life of us. Well, we didn't want to lose it. So we got into a boat, and I was at the motor, and we, we kind of got ourselves into the reeds. And we began trying to get this, this uh, lure out. And as we were in the boat... His, uh, my friend's name was Tyler. His father was on the dock, and he kept saying, "Jamin, you're drifting. You need to you need to give a little bit of uh, you need to give a little bit to the motor, and you need to start pulling your boat out a little bit. You're drifting in. You're you're, you're being pushed in. I couldn't see it. I said, "No, no, no. We're, we're we're staying still because there was such a gradual movement of that that lake shore just pushing us in. I couldn't even tell. I didn't even recognize that I was moving." And so I didn't give anything to the motor. I said, okay, we're all right. And he said, Jamin, you need to give a little extra to the motor because you're, you're drifting. You're drifting toward the shore. And I said, oh, we're, we're okay here. And then we scraped bottom. 
and I couldn't give anything to the motor anymore because it was hit, it hit the bottom of the lake and we had to get the oars out and we had to push ourselves out and I had to apologize and say, you know, you saw that I was drifting. I couldn't see it. I was right there. I have eyes. You have eyes. I was there. You were there. I couldn't see it. You saw it. Well, the Holy Spirit sees things that we don't. The Holy Spirit knows things that we don't. And just because you don't think you've drifted, don't let that convince you that you haven't. And so I encourage you, as we look over these ordinances that God has talked with Israel about, whether it's the holiness ordinances that we've already talked about, or these rules that we're talking about over the next couple of weeks, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And don't tell him, I'm not drifting. I'm okay. At when he's telling you, you need to back up. You need to return to me. Because perhaps he can see things that you cannot. That's my encouragement to you as we get going this morning. One of the ordinances that Israel had forsaken was that of giving to God. We have already mentioned that God does not need us, but that he has chosen to use us. In the very same way, God does not need our money, but he has chosen to use our money to accomplish his purposes. And so, he does expect us to give to him. In fact, his expectation of his people's giving is so definite that when his people do not give, he considers it robbery to him. When God's people do not give to him, he considers it robbery. So today, as I mentioned already, I, I feel a little awkward preaching this message after such a tremendous offering last week for the Gillespie's. And I do not want you to feel as though I'm giving this message because I'm asking for more of you. But if God is asking more of you, respond to God. I'm not trying to guilt you into giving. I'm not trying to suck more out of you. I'm not doing anything like that this morning. I'm preaching the word of God in the passage that God has ordained for today. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will use it in our hearts. So let's get going. Two principles of giving that God, uh, to God that you can apply to your personal giving practices. Two principles of giving to God that you can apply to your personal giving practices. Principle number one, God expects his people to give to his work. Simply put, God expects his people to give to his work. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. God asks through Malachi, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, but ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? God responds, in tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. God asks Israel this question, will a man rob God? The word translated rob in the Hebrew is a very rare word in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's found only four times in the Old Testament. Two of those times are right here in Malachi 3, 8, and 9. The other two are found in Proverbs 22, verse 23, where it is translated not rob, but spoil. Translated, spoil. To rob someone is to take something, as we know, 
from someone that is theirs by right, which you do not have the right to yourself, and yet you are taking it from them and claiming it as your own. Now, as we think about the definition of what it means to rob, as we think even about that pseudonym, the whole idea of spoiling, and we think about in war, where people would spoil the cities after a battle, it is truly unfathomable, is it not, that a man would rob God? That a man would take something that belongs to God and claim it for himself? Something that is God's and yet a man would take it and say, this is mine, not yours? Literally, God accused the people of Judah of taking something for themselves that was rightfully his, something which they had no right to. Judah asks the logical question, as we would expect from their blindness, how have we robbed you? Wherein have we robbed thee? God answers very plainly. He says, because you have withheld from me your tithes and your offerings. Now to understand the entirety of Israel's obligation to give under the Mosaic law would take more time than we have today and deeper study than we can do in the time that we have. But I do want to orient us to the expectations of God for his people Israel under the law. And they were not minor expectations. When we think of tithes and offerings, we think of 10%. Plus, as many pastors would say, they'd say the 10% tithe and then above and beyond for things like missionaries and such. And that's what we would think of when we think of tithes and offerings. But in Levitical law, it was much, much more than that. There were numerous offerings and tithes expected of the people in a given year and in a given cycle of years. Leviticus 27 describes the expectation that a man would take a tenth of all of his increase and he would give a tenth of all of his increase to God. Now, he could choose not to give a certain part of his increase. Perhaps he had his crops and he had his flocks and he had, um, he had, he had made some, he had taken the, the sheep and he had sheared the sheep and he'd made some wool and he'd sold that wool. And so he takes 10% of the income of the wool and he gives it to God. And he takes 10% of the, the, the field, the crop, and he gives it to God. But let's say he didn't have very many sheep. And if he were to take the best of his sheep, he would be fleecing his flock. No pun intended. He would be, be reducing his flock to an unsustainable number. He can't afford to give God one of his sheep. Because the, the flock would be cut to where he couldn't have more sheep in, in, in the future. He was able to redeem one of those. He was able to redeem a portion of his obligation to God. He could give what it was worth in money plus an extra fifth part. So he could either give a tenth of the increase of his cattle, or if he still couldn't manage to give a tenth, he could give 15% of he could give the worth of the cattle plus an extra 5%. And that was the law that God had established in order that Israel would give back to God. Now Numbers 18.24 describes the heave offering as a tithe and expects that a tenth of the tithe would be given specifically to meet the needs of the Levites. So the heave offering would be a 10%. A tenth of that heave offering would be given to the Levites to meet their needs. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29 describes the expectation that God's people would tithe of the increase of their crops, 
and wine and oil and herds and flocks. Every year they were to go to the tabernacle and they were to eat their tithe before the Lord. So this was still theirs. They would come before the Lord and they would eat that tithe before the Lord. However, every third year they were to take that tithe and they were to give it to the Levites to eat. And so the first year and the second year they were to eat of that tithe. The third year they were to take that tithe and the Levites were going to get it. And so every third year as people would be on this rotation, the Levites would constantly be fed by the giving of the tithes as each family was on perhaps a different year rotation for their third year and the Levites were to be taken care of and they were then to be able to give this tithe to the Lord but still be recipients of the blessings of that tithe as well. Now on top of those three tithes that I just mentioned there were numerous other expected giving um, obligations to Israel throughout the year. Leviticus 1, 1 through 17 speaks of a free will offering. Leviticus 2, 1 through 16 speaks of a meat offering. Leviticus 3, 1 through 17 speaks of a peace offering. Leviticus 4, 1 through 6, 7 is ordinances on the sin offering. Leviticus 7, 1 through 10 is the trespass offering. And Leviticus 16, 1 through 34 is an offering on the day of atonement. As we think about that list. Under the law, Israel had tremendous obligations to give to God and to God's people. There were also ordinances that expected that if a stranger came into the land, that they would be taken care of, that their needs would be met, that they would be given what they need to be able to be sustained in the land. They were given these obligations, however, with an explicit promise under the law. If they obeyed God's word and gave as God had called them to give, he would physically bless them in correlation to their obedience. Now the great offense of God's people in which they were guilty of robbing God was directly tied to their failure to give to God the tithes and the offerings that he expected of them. In verse 9 of Malachi 3, God thus tells them that they are cursed for robbing him. He says, you are cursed with a curse for not giving him that which he deserved, for not giving him that which he had the right to. They were cursed with a curse. Now, this contention is presented under the promise that, as we read, if they will just return to God, if they will start doing what God has commanded them to do, that God would return to them. It is a call of mercy and of grace as much as it is a call of condemnation and judgment. God is telling them they have done wrong, but it is not without a call, an opportunity, an offer of grace and mercy if they will but correct their methods. And isn't that just like our God? Now, as we consider these three verses and we attempt to apply these verses to the church, we must do so with care and with prudence. As with every rebuke that God has made to Judah throughout the book of Malachi and anywhere else really in the Old Testament, every consequence he announced, every blessing he announced was within the framework of the Mosaic Covenant. God had physically promised them that he would bless them physically if they obeyed his law and that he would physically curse them if they disobeyed his law. 
Now, the church is not under the obligation of the Mosaic Covenant. Galatians teaches us very clearly that that covenant has passed away, and we are under a covenant that is often referred to in Scripture as the New Covenant. Many will call it the Covenant of Grace. We might call it the New Testament, as you recall us talking about it in our Lord's Supper Emphasis service. However, though we are under the New Covenant, we serve the same God. And he has not left the church without instructions related to giving. Now, the instructions related to giving to the church are somewhat broad. And they are more principal than they are uh, explicit instruction. And as we try to understand and apply these truths to the church, we must first ask a few questions to properly define the context within which we speak. Now, what is a tithe? As we understand the word tithe from Scripture, as we understand it, as it has been used back in the time when the the King James translators uh, wrote the, or translated the scriptures, what tithe meant, it literally meant by definition a tenth. One tenth, ten percent. As was used in the Old uh, Testament, it was a common occurrence for God to receive an offering of one tenth or ten percent of that with which he blessed his people. Now, why give a tithe? Why give a tithe? The tithe was the means of giving back to God a portion of what he had given to men. The tithe was given to perhaps a man of God, the Levites, or in the case of Abraham, he tithed of the spoil to Melchizedek, and he gave his tithe to Melchizedek, or perhaps it was given specifically to the tabernacle of God, so not necessarily designated for a man, but designated for the house of God. Or perhaps it was a means for providing uh, for a man to do the service of God, uh, specifically for the services that were to take place. The tithe was an act of faith. This act of faith was one in which a man demonstrated physically by giving a tenth of what he has to God, his faith that God would continue to provide for his needs. It was an act of obedience whereby he submitted himself to the Mosaic law as it was expected. And then as well, um, giving to God a portion of his income, recognizing that that first portion of his income is, in faith, the beginning of more that they expected God to give. But as we enter the New Testament, the word, the command of tithing is non-existent, in fact. You don't see the word tithe. In the New Testament. There is nothing in the epistles that commands a New Testament believer to give 10% of his income. And so what do we do with that? Why wouldn't there be? What should that mean for us? Well, I believe it means this. That there is no explicit 10% requirement upon God's church in giving. We can't find that command in the New Testament, though many of the commands of the Old Testament are reiterated to the church where appropriate. However, does that mean that we are free not to give to God? Does that mean that God is still not entitled to a portion of our income, a portion of the abundance that he has given to us? Well, we have looked over the past many weeks and we can very strongly say that that is not the case. Well, what does God's word say? 
We'll talk about explicitly, and then I want to talk about implicitly for a moment. First, we know that giving is a form of personal worship to God. Matthew 6, 1-4 says this, Take heed that you do not your alms, your giving, before men, to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So we recognize from that the principle of Matthew 6 is that giving is a very personal form of worship. That is one of the reasons why we give the way we do in this church. I don't believe it's wrong to pass a basket. In fact, we did so last week because I believe that uh, these particular aspects of giving, where we're giving to a man of God, is a little bit more of a public form based upon 2 Corinthians 9. But giving as a whole is a very personal form of worship. It's between you and God. It's not meant to be something that you trumpet for everyone to see. It's not meant to be something that other people do not know. Now, in our society, obviously, there are those that you have given to God that know what that giving is because they keep the books. You can still give anonymously and such, and that works out just fine. Your pastor doesn't know. I make a a very firm point of not knowing what people give. I know the totals of the offerings when I ask, but I do not know what individuals give. I don't want to know what individuals give. That's between the individuals and God. Giving is a personal form of worship. Giving, we see as well from the scriptures, is voluntary and is joyful. We talked about this. We had an entire sermon on this. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So giving is personal. Giving is according to every man, purposing in his heart, and it's supposed to be done cheerfully. Giving is more than simply money. In the time of Israel, they were expected to give of their crops, to give of their wine, to give of their, their increase in any form. You know, God has blessed us in many ways, and we're expected to give. Ephesians 5.16 calls us to redeem the time, because the days are evil. Colossians 3.23 commands us to use our abilities for the glory of God. So the expectations in giving back to God are not just the expectations of money, but of time and of ability. God expects us to support the ministers of God's word. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Paul writing, he says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So God uses this example of the ministers living in the tabernacle and in the temple as a picture, as an illustration of the fact that those who preach the word of God ought to live of the abundance of the giving of those who are ministered to. Giving is in line with the principle of first fruits, all the way back to Cain and Abel you can see the principle of first fruits. Now, Genesis does not tell us that Cain and Abel tithed, per se. We do not know if it was 10% or whatever they gave, but what they gave was the first fruits of what God had given to them. Cain brought the first fruits of the crop. He was the farmer. Abel brought the first fruits of his 
uh, of his flock, which was a lamb. As it turns out, God had commanded Cain not to give the first fruits of the flock, but to bring a lamb for that particular offering. But that's what they were doing. They were bringing the first fruits. And so we see the idea of first fruits, and that concept flows all the way through scriptures. And so that's another principle that we can add to the list, the principle of first fruits, giving the first of that which God has given to us faithfully. All of these principles rest in the New Testament and are indicators to us of how God would have us to give. And so we see that God expects his people to give, to give voluntarily, to give joyfully, and to give as an extension of their worship to God. But there is one other principle which overrides every command to give found in the scriptures, and that is the principle, we've talked about it a little bit in the past few weeks, of sowing and reaping. The principle of sowing and reaping, and that's the principle that we see here in verses 11 through 12 of Malachi 3, and we see it all throughout scripture once again. Malachi 3.11 says, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruits before the time in the field saith the Lord of hosts, and all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord. Now within the context of Judah and the Mosaic law, God states definitively that the blessings that will be upon the nation if they will return to God will be manifold. Let's look at these blessings together. He says first that he will rebuke the devourer. Literally, the devourer would have been the pestilence of their crops. They are farmers. They have to deal with the plagues, with the pestilence, with the locusts that would come and eat their crops, with all of these things. God says, if you will give me what I have asked you to give, then I will rebuke the devourer. The pestilence won't come. And so maybe you did keep back that tithe that you were expected to give to me. But how much of your crop did you lose to pestilence this year? See, if you would have given to me, I would have rebuked the devourer for your sake. Because you gave. And you would have ended up ahead. He says he will sustain their crops. That they would yield bountiful harvests continually. He told them that they would be a delightsome land. What a wonderful translation. Delightsome Describing that which is delightful, full of delight. People would look at their land and they would see those hills of grain. They would see wine uh, orchards, uh, grape orchards bursting with these grapes. Wine presses that are always full. They would see the abundant blessings of the land and of the crops upon them if they would but obey God and give to him. If the people would only be faithful to do what God expected them to do, God's faithfulness would pour upon them in unfathomable blessing. It is a common theme in Scripture that those things which God's people do in faith are rewarded by God in ways more abundantly than they could have imagined. The principle in Scripture has been coined the sowing and reaping principle, and it is one that applies to giving just as much as any other aspect of our lives. We saw in the Matthew chapter 6 passage that God who sees in secret will reward thee openly. We see in 2 Corinthians 9 passage that he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully 
shall reap also bountifully. Paul goes on to say that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. Now, the difference between the sowing and reaping principle of the church and that of Israel is this. Under the Mosaic law, God promised that if they would obey him, that they would experience explicit, material, physical blessing unlike any other nation on the earth has ever experienced. They would have abundant food. They would have abundant gold. They would have abundant cattle. They would be free from disease. They would be free from war. Now, some of those blessings most certainly do carry over to the believer in the age of grace who would devote himself to God as God would desire him to. But the promises in the New Testament are not as explicit on the ways in which God's blessings overflow. But as we understand from 2 Corinthians 9, what we are promised is all sufficiency, continual provision, and beyond a doubt, heavenly rewards which will not, nor can they, pass away. So, as we close this morning, let's put some of these principles together. God has expectations upon his people with regards to giving. Can a believer rob God? Most certainly, a believer can rob God. So the question for us, as we ask the Holy Spirit humbly to search our hearts, is this. Are you robbing God? Am I robbing God? Am I withholding from God the money or the time or the abilities that he has given to me? Am I giving to God a proportional amount as to how he has blessed me? Or am I a stingy giver, unwilling to part with my coveted income, unwilling to give of my coveted time, unwilling to give God that which he has given to me? But God... I only get so much money per month. I can't give to the church. I can't give to that missionary. I can't give to that neighbor. I can't give to that friend. I can't give to that family member. You've laid it upon my heart to give, but, but you see my bank account. You see my paychecks. If you give to God, God will without fail meet your needs without fail, meet your needs. Now, I didn't say he'll meet all your wants, but he will, without fail, meet your needs as you are a good steward of that which he has given to you. But God, I can't give up my time. Do you know how busy I am? I can't give up my time to do that church activity. We don't even have that many church activities. I can't give up my time to... Invite them over even though I know that they need some encouragement. I can't give out, up my time to go help them out. Even though there might be a bridge to the gospel somewhere in that conversation. But, but this is my time. I don't have enough time for this. I just plain don't have enough time. If you give to God, God will without fail provide for your needs. It's promised in God's word. It's not just a Mosaic promise. It's not just an Old Testament promise. God will make 
all sufficiency abound unto us, unto every good work. Why has God given you time? So that you can give it. Why has God given you money? So that you can give it. Why has God given you abilities? So that you can give them. So that you can use all that God has given to you to see other people encouraged, other people discipled, and other people evangelized. A good New Testament giving principle. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, Paul tells the church in Corinth this. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. Lay up in store as God has prospered him. We give to God a proportional amount of what he has given to us. Now that's a proportional amount as he has laid it upon our hearts. Perhaps that's 10%. 10% is a great level to put it at. That's what the Old Testament uh, tabernacle asked for. 10% is a fine number. But do what God has laid upon your heart. Perhaps you don't give 10%. Perhaps you just set a minimum. God, regardless of what I make this month, I'm going to give this much. And if you abound more toward me, then I'll go up from there. Perhaps it means a month-by-month decision where you get on your knees and you ask God, how much should I give to you this month? How much do you want me to give? And you know, one month it may just be manageable. And the next month, God may ask you to really give something special. Maybe give a little extra. Makes it hard for the church to budget, I suppose. But you know what? That doesn't matter. God will provide for the church's needs just like God will provide for your needs. Give what God lays upon your heart to give. Do you want to set it at 10%? Set it at 10%. You want to set a minimum? Set a minimum. You want to make it a month-by-month leading of the Holy Spirit? Do, but follow the principles of Scripture and recognize that a man can rob God. Say, I give every month. Are you giving what God wants you to give every month? Can a man rob God? Will a man rob God? A man can rob God. And so, as with many things... In this Christian life we lead, it comes down to a matter of faith. It comes down to a matter of walking in the Spirit. Do you have enough faith to trust that if you turn to God, He will turn to you? Is it worth, is the worth, excuse me, that you show to God reflected in your tithes and in your offerings? Are you showing God his worth through your giving? Or are you like Israel? Are you like Judah? Who didn't give? Who didn't give of their time? Or their money? Or their abilities? They said, God, we're going down our checklist. We do what you ask us to do. We, 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 we get things done. Right? We, we're doing our sacrifices on the altar. We're going to church. We're, we're in attendance. We're doing okay. And God says, return to me and I'll return unto you. Are you robbing God of your money, your time, or your abilities that he has the right to by nature of who he is and what he has done for you? I encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict your hearts, to search your hearts this morning.
I keep these messages broad because I want the Holy Spirit to do the work. I want the Holy Spirit to be the one that convicts you. It was God who confronted the nation of Judah and said, Will a man rob God? And it will be God that confronts your own heart in the necessity that you have to give back to God proportionally, cheerfully, voluntarily, that which he has given to you. Let's pray.